If someone said, I'm going to ride my bike across Africa from Cairo to Cape Town, would you believe them? You would if you were talking to Henry Gold. Henry's transcontinental cycling journeys have taken him through Africa, and now he plans to conquer the Arctic. You don't have to cross the ocean to find your island paradise. We will go south to experience Jekyll Island in the way early inhabitants did hundreds of years ago. They were doing the same thing that people do today. They were vacationing here. Martha's Vineyard was considered a summer colony for the rich and famous, but the island is available for every budget. Once owned by William Wrigley Jr. of Wrigley's Chewing Gum fame, Catalina Island reflects the Wrigley family's commitment to conservation. 80% of the island is a wilderness area that's managed under a, a land trust. Prepare for a transcontinental bike ride to the South Pole and experience island paradise, USA style, in Georgia, Massachusetts, and California. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Twenty-two miles off the coast of Southern California, Catalina Island is an easy day trip and welcome getaway from the corporate world. This island is a reflection of conservation and Spanish colonial architecture and style, and the waters surrounding Catalina Island offer a clarity that rivals the Caribbean. On the opposite coast in the United States, Massachusetts' Martha's Vineyard Island has been known as a summer playground for the rich and famous. And although the rich and famous still frequent the island, Nancy Gardella from the Convention and Visitors Bureau helped us find several gems that everyone can enjoy. We'll crisscross the United States to explore these two islands a bit later. Coming up on today's World Footprints Radio Show... We'll head south to Georgia and hop over to Jekyll Island to find out what makes that island so unique. And we'll go inside some of America's interesting historic hotels. First, at the age of 50, Henry Gold, an electrical engineer by trade, found himself broke and unemployable, so he decided to roll the entrepreneurial dice. In 2003, he co-founded TDA Global Cycling, a transcontinental bicycle expedition operation, and immediately embarked with some friends on a trans-African bike trip from Cairo to Cape Town, which also earned Henry a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. Henry has continued growing his transcontinental bicycling enterprise, and his latest venture will be a bike ride to the South Pole. What was your inspiration for cross-country cycling? I started uh, figuring I was running a non-for-profit organization in Africa and, and I saw this old, well, what I told the old woman carrying these very heavy loads and then I thought, well, somebody should bring some cheap bikes here and, and that sort of evolved into me trying to set up a bicycle factory in, in Kenya and the idea of cycling across Africa stuck. And then years later, I said to myself, well, time to do it. I turned 50, and that's how the whole concept started of cycling, cycling across continents. You were 50 when you started, and your bicycle trip from Cairo to Cape Town at that age, I'm sure a lot of people had to wonder if all of your faculties were there. <laughs> Absolutely correct, <laughs> from friends to families to strangers. Um, they were all uh, telling me things like, this time you have really flipped out. <laughs> um, when we published it for the first time in a, in a Toronto uh, newspaper, the, um, 
the response were that uh, we are charlatans, that we don't know what we're doing, that uh, we're going to elite people, and they're going to get killed, and so on. It's not doable. Um, so those were the initial reactions, very strong reactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, we managed to uh, set up a date, and, and uh, we had 31 people, plus myself and my business partner, and we managed to do it, and then we predicted we are going to do it in 120 days, and that's exactly what happened. So we did it the first time, and then we sort of thought, well, that kind of worked. What are we going to do again? <laughs> what will be the next trip? And that sort of evolved. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, 11... Um, would be 11 uh, epic, epical trips, uh, six of them crossing continents, and another four or five actually were shorter in, 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 uh, in ambitions. Nevertheless, they're still quite long. The trip that you took from uh, Cairo to Cape Town earned you a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. What was the record itself? The concept was to have a continuous cycling uh, cycle or a human-powered crossing of Africa. And it wasn't done before for a variety of reasons. Um, challenges were both um, uh, geographical, uh, crossing through Sahara, for example, but also geopolitical. Uh, there were parts of many countries that were simply uh, individuals were simply not allowed to enter by themselves. There were only convoys allowed. Um, and so um, that was a, there was a challenge of doing it. And I approached Guinness essentially to be the concept of um, would you be interested if you set up the, the, the first human power uh, crossing of, of Africa is as a, as a, as an attempt. And they were interested, and they created the condition under which we were going to run this, which was that uh, any person who actually gets into a vehicle or a bus or anything else, in other words, you have to do every inch of it, um, and there has to be witnesses, of course, um, that you are cycling the whole thing. And um, so we, we, we established the parameters, and they were happy with that, and, and we started, and uh, the rest is history. I'm <laughs> curious how your engineering background helped you. Your mind perhaps works a certain way, very pragmatic, very practical, and, and I think that helps when you are trying to cross continents where you take on new projects because you have to break it down to little pieces and you have to focus on what are the most challenging, what are the most problematic issues, what if things go wrong, uh, how do you deal with that. Um, and I think those are sort of the basic things that um, many engineers, I would think, get out of their engineering school. What was it that drew you to Africa? My parents are a Holocaust survivor, and, and uh, living with two Holocaust survivors who lost all their family, you have a very strong sensitivity to other people's suffering. And then in 1984, I was still working as an engineer, and I, I met this local doctor here in Toronto who was trying to set up this non-for-profit organization to go to work in Africa, and he needed some help. And I decided after taking a long trip up northern Canada that maybe I should do that. And so we joined forces and we set up this non-for-profit organization called CPAR, which stands for Canadian Physicians for Aid and Relief, because he was a physician and it was, his, it was his idea. And then again, the rest is history. We set up this organization. We worked. We work. I was the executive director for nine years. It started from zero. By the time I left, it uh, was working in um, Nine countries had a multi-million dollar budget. Uh, we helped a lot of people, millions of people, and um, until I burned out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk about some of the films you directed and produced that focused on your philanthropic work, your nonprofit work, and that earned you several 
Awards that also found its genesis in the work that you were doing in Africa. Can you talk a little bit about those three films? The origin of the films was uh, essentially I would come back from uh, <clears throat> working in, in Ethiopia during the famine and would be surrounded by very bright and capable people uh, trying to explain how this, you know, how 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 famine happened. How did the fact that in the modern society, which has so much resources and, and such technical power and capabilities, how does it happen that all of a sudden a million people or five million people are exposed to death, uh, or ten million people are starving, and and you know, and, and one million are ending up dying, and, and children, etc. And I was trying to always explain this, and I always felt that even people who are really right, they were just not getting the essence of this disaster happened and why they happened. So um, I had this very good friend who was a documentary filmmaker, and I pitched him his idea, and I said, you know, why don't you do a film? And, and he turned around and said, why don't you do it? Mm. <laughs> and, and I sort of then went back home and again tossed around in my bed, and I said, well, is he right? Should I attempt it? And then, uh, yeah, I sat down and wrote, wrote a concept, um, and then we, we made a proposal, and, and uh, we started pitching it to funding uh, individuals and groups and foundations. Um, and eventually we managed to put the money together and um, we went and, uh, and shot went and did those films. Um, uh, one was on uh, the challenges of development in Africa, one was on the health challenges of Africa, and the other one was on, on the AIDS epidemic, which in those days was just uh, an unknown entity, and, and, and people had no idea how to deal with it. And, and we filmed in eight countries, dealing with both uh, people who were dealing with it and the patients and the families. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and Tanya and I are talking to Henry Gold of TDA Global Cycling about his upcoming bike trip to the South Pole. If you're interested in joining this excursion, visit worldfootprints.com for relevant links and information. I understand you're making preparations for a bike ride in the South Pole. Talk about what's going into the preparations for this and when will this ride ultimately take place? So once we realize that the technology is there, we started investigating could, could we do a trip in Antarctica, which is the seventh continent. And in fact, we have something called uh, Seven Epics on Seven Continents. So um, we sort of thought, well, why not try to do it? And we started doing research, and um, one of our former um, guides actually uh, has become an expert on the Arctic, and he took it upon himself to really uh, investigate, and he found out yes, that uh, it can be done. Uh, and we got in touch with uh, an organization based in the States called, called ALE, which provides most of the logistical support for uh, any any sort of uh, event or uh, research on, in Antarctica. We got in touch with them and started negotiating what uh, or discussing sort of uh, logistical uh, support they can provide. Um, and back in fact, they have a very strong and, and um, they have a lot of expertise to support expeditions and research, and filmmaking, etc. So once we found them and once they accepted us as a, as a partner in this endeavor, and the rest kind of became much simpler um, because the infrastructure for this sort of stuff already exists in, in the Antarctica. 
um, what doesn't exist at this point are bicycles and 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 the participants were interested. So uh, we are now announcing the first time ever a, a bicycle um, uh, trip in Antarctica. Uh, we call it the last degree because uh, the concept is to fly to the 89 parallel. Um, to be dropped there by by small planes, and from there on we'll be cycling uh, without any support to the South Pole. Um, this will be done in December of 2016. We are going to be doing between now and then. We are still uh, testing the bicycles and and what sort of other support system we, we require. Um, and we also are doing a kind of a boot camp for any individual who would be interested, a training camp, if you will on Lake Winnipeg in uh, in the middle of Canadian winter, uh, February. Um, so anybody that's interested in that has to actually pass or, or at least uh, be part of that to see what what is it like, what are the challenges, uh, what kind of clothing, uh, what kind of equipment the person needs, etc. So that's a kind of a three-step process where first... Uh, our guide is going to go and test the whole thing by himself. He'll be going in December this year uh, to Antarctica, uh, test every aspect of the trip. And uh, once we come back, then we're going to do the, the training in, in, in February. And then next year, December, we hope to be the first group ever to cycle to Antarctica. Dear, do you think you could be in shape by next December for this bike ride? <laughs> well, you know, I would love to be a part of travel history. I mean, it sounds very exciting. And I'd be happy to start working out and buying things for that. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to have to go together to stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> and and don't forget a little bag to carry our poop. Oh. How different is cold weather training versus training for Antarctica. Is there is there any difference? Well, yeah, there's a difference in the sense that everything is much more difficult when you have two or three or four layers of clothing and you can take off your gloves when something goes wrong with your brake or if you have a flat tire or, or whatever. So, so obviously there are some challenges that one has to deal with. Um, but the physical and mental training are not different uh, because um, you know part of it is not as much physical; it's it's mental. It's uh, can you deal with the obstacles? Can you can you um, you know when there's bad weather and, and when you're stuck in a tent and the wind, etc. How do you deal with it? How do you how do you how does your mind more than the physical aspect? The physical aspect we found out. You know, people we talked about me being 50 and going going on this cross Africa trip and, and since then I've gone essentially on other old trips and, and um and I'm getting much older <laughs> since mm. then. Um and and in fact we have clients who are much much older than me, you know, ten, fifteen years older than me. Um and what what distinguishes them from other people who it's their mental capability, not physical. Physically your body adjusts. We are all strong enough once we get into the training and 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 focused on ourselves, you know, that we're going to do this. It, what, what the difference between those who actually do it and 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 make it are the ones who are tough when the going gets really tough. You know, when it, when it's the wind is bad, when the the weather, when it's raining on you, when when you know there are many other reasons why you shouldn't be doing it. But uh, there are people who actually enjoy it, and 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 more to the point, I think it's more of a 
for some it's even more, more of a spiritual journey. It changes people's perspective on the world. It changes, you know, there's so many things that one learns from this kind of trips about themselves, about the culture, about the people around him. Uh, it, it's 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 hard to describe in simple words how how life changing those those experiences are, mm-hmm. and as a result, we have people who keep coming back second, third, fourth, fifth trips. You know, we have clients who have been with us on on nine or ten trips, um, and uh, just because they find it's, it's such a, such an amazing adventure, um, I, I, I think the word adventure doesn't even. Doesn't fit. I think it's just just an it's just such an amazing thing to to be doing. Now you mentioned that on this particular trip you won't have the type of support that you normally receive on some of your other transcontinental trips. And what will be the difference in the level of support with this South Pole trip? This is essentially uh, because once we are dropped off uh, at the I nine parallels, we are self supported. Um, so every individual will either have to carry what we need on their backs or they're going to be a little sled or boat that they're going to be pulling the, um, behind their bicycles. Uh, we will have communication with the base camp in Antarctica in case there's an emergency and there's going to be a need for a plane to be, get picked up. But otherwise, there's no other vehicles. There won't be any motorized vehicles. There won't be a ski or on any other um, vehicles supporting supporting the trip, which means that uh, we have to be self, self, uh, self-supported self and we have to deal with any potential emergency, unless it's such an emergency where we, we call for help and we got to get airlifted, um, which, of course, is a different problem uh, that's becoming, that becomes very, very expensive and so on. But it's durable, and, and we will be continuously communicating three or four times with the base camp, um, telling them about our progress and, and telling them... Uh, um, if, if whatever is happening, just uh, on a day-to-day basis, and that is very much different than any of our transcontinental trips, where we do have a backup vehicles um, in which we have uh, everything from medical uh, equipment, uh, drugs, uh, water, food, etc. Uh, which is, for example, the type of thing we need when we cross the Sahara or when we cross the mountain ranges and so on. So yes, there's a there's a there's a tremendous difference in that sense. Um, the the other, other thing, of course, is that uh, some of our trips are months long. This is only going to be altogether about uh, 18 or 19 days, so it, it's much shorter um, in that sense. And even the distance with the cycling is not going to be. Um, very long per day. Um, I mean, we are calculating uh, that it will take us seven to nine days to get uh, to the South Pole. If you feel like a cold adventure and desire to explore the South Pole on a bicycle, contact tdaglobalcycling.com for more information and to register. Also, make sure you don't forget your mittens and thermals.
Dean Michael Addis, the Lord Baltimore Hotel in, of course, Baltimore, Maryland. What makes the Lord Baltimore a unique place? It was the first hotel built in Baltimore following the Great Fire. It was built in 1928. It opened December 30th of that year. And all 23 stories, and at that time 700 rooms, were built in seven months. A year and a half ago, we reopened, did a grand reopening and a relaunch of the Lord Baltimore. $20 million later, someone bought it, rebuilt it, restored all the historic features. It's now a 400 room luxury hotel. And one of the things about the Lord Baltimore today is that it has an arts focus. It is owned by an art family, the Rubel family from Miami. They actually found the hotel on the auction block while visiting the Matisse exhibit at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Decided to buy it. So we have a huge art focus because it's owned by an art family in what is considered an art city. There are many opportunities to island hop within the United States. We begin our island hopping in Georgia on Jekyll Island, where visitors are transported back in time to experience the rich heritage that makes the island unique. As residents and tourism officials Ben Carswell and Gretchen Brimlinger tell us, the natural beauty of the island has remained untouched. Jekyll Island is on the coast of Georgia, uh, which is the, uh, the Atlantic coast, and we're down towards the south end of uh, the Georgia coast. Uh, we're about halfway in between Jacksonville, Florida, and Savannah, Georgia, and we are a barrier island. Georgia's actually done a wonderful job of preserving its natural coastline. So there's actually a series of eight major barrier islands on the Mm. coast of Georgia. Most of them are primarily undeveloped and Mm -hmm. and actually can't be accessed by any other way than by boat. So we are accessible down a four-mile causeway and a bridge to get onto Jekyll. We're only partially developed here, so it's a neat way for all sorts of folks to have access to uh, a a little bit of the wild, but also some of the comforts of a resort-type atmosphere. Uh, Gretchen, what is the history of the island, the indigenous people or the people who occupied the island early on? We have evidence of Native American populations here on the island more than 4,000 years ago. Interestingly enough, they were doing the same thing that people do today. They were vacationing here. They were coming here seasonally. They were hunting. They were fishing. And then they would return to their more permanent settlements on the mainland. There was quite a few international folks going back and forth up and down the waterways. The French would pass by, the Spanish would pass by, but it was the English who finally really settled here. And who are some of the tribes that occupied the island early on? We are actually right on kind of the borderland between the Timucuan, which was a uh, group of Native Americans to the south of us. Uh, there's a lot of evidence of them down around Jacksonville. And the Wale Indians, which were um, more of a northern group. And we were kind of just a intersection where those two main tribes overlap. What are some of the architectural influences that have shaped Jekyll Island today? Well, I think the architectural influence is one that is really unexpected that you will find here on the island. In 1885, the entire island was actually purchased by a group of northern industrialists. It was purchased what they would call the Jekyll Island Club, and it was pretty much all the movers and shakers of the Industrial Revolution. William Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, Joseph Pulitzer, Henry Hyde. They would purchase the island and establish a winter retreat here, but these folks would 
create a cottage colony, which is now our landmark historic district. So the architecture within that historic district is very northern influence. We have some shingle-style architecture. It's more like you might be in Bar Harbor, Maine, or Newport, uh, Rhode Island. And then we had really no development on the island until the um, early 1950s, and that's when the state would purchase the island. And starting in the mid-1950s, we have a few different neighborhoods of some pretty uh, spectacular ranch-style homes here on the island. So there's quite a good and interesting contrast of historic components with kind of mid-century architecture on the island. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, and I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Ian and I are enjoying a virtual tour of Jekyll Island with our friends from the Tourism Bureau, Ben Carswell and Gretchen Gremlinger. Ben, are there some iconic landmarks that people visiting, first-time visitors, would want to see. The Jekyll Island Club, the main clubhouse building, became the Jekyll Island Club Hotel and is still operated today as a functioning historic hotel, one of the historic hotels of America. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's certainly a a landmark structure and quite an experience to visit there. And on the natural side, uh, a place called Driftwood Beach, which is a beach on uh, the northern part of our island, is kind of a a hidden gem that's that's an icon of the island. What Mm -hmm. it is is a beach that's that's actually eroding and there used to be a forest of live oak trees growing here and the soil actually washed out from underneath them the skeletons of the trees were left behind and that wood petrified and so it's kind of a, a photographer's playground out there and a neat place to hang up a hammock or just go out go for a walk what are some of your popular festivals the Shrimp and Grits Festival, which is our biggest event of the year. Folks come from across the country, and I think some even internationally. And this year we had 45,000 folks come for the event over the course of three days. It's the third weekend in September. And uh, the main part of that event takes place right in our historic district. And there's chef's competitions and uh, samples of different varieties of shrimp and grits. One of the neat things about shrimp and grits is there's so many different ways to do it, so many different varieties on that theme. Gretchen, what are some of the major recreational activities and and outlets available to visitors to Jekyll Island? We have bike paths, but the beach, of course, draws a lot of folks to the island, and that's that's been the big draw. What about people who want to walk in the footsteps of history? What places uh, can they go to experience the history of the island? The historic district is definitely the most visible and recognized area for folks looking at history. We have a pretty substantial golf history on the island. Uh, We have, since 1898, golf has been part of Jekyll Island. We do have nine holes of what was uh, originally they called the Seaside Course. Uh, It was completed in 1927, so folks that are interested in golf, uh, can still go out and play this golf course today. It's an incredible challenge, and the Great Dunes Golf Course plays unlike anything most folks have ever experienced because it's still very much a links course, so it's much more of a traditional old-style golf course experience. Ben, in addition to the Jekyll Island Club, what are some of the other lodging options available for families and for visitors to the island? So we do have a campground as well uh, that's on the north end of the island in the Maritime Forest up there. It's a neat campground because you really are surrounded by trees when you stay there. And there's an array of modern hotels on the oceanfront. 
Um, and I say modern relative to the Jekyll Island Club Hotel, but some of these structures date back to the, the 1960s. And we have some actually that were just completed last year, sort of redevelopment uh, redevelopment projects, revitalization projects. Mm-hmm. So whether you like the historic feel of the Jekyll Island Club Hotel or you're looking for a place with ocean views and access to the beach for your family, there's a variety of things to choose from and a variety of price points as well. Speaking of the Jekyll Island Club Hotel, we had an opportunity to see the hotel up close with Amy Weisenbaker at a recent Historic Hotels of America event. We were originally a hunting retreat for the millionaires back in the late 1800s. When was the property built? It was constructed in 1886 and then it shut down as the Jekyll Island Club right after the Great Depression hit, and then we opened it officially as the Jekyll Island Club Hotel in 1986. We're our state park as well, so there's not a lot of buildup around the island. It's still very serene and very natural. There's marshes, rivers, beaches. There's just everything you want to do. If you want to bike, you can. There's 20 miles of bike paths. If you want to run, if you want to go ice skating, we're going to have that this winter. If you want to do historic tram tours, I mean, there's just so much to do outside to kind of get away from the city life, too, as well. If you want a nice, relaxing, outdoor, calming getaway, I think we're definitely where you want to go. To learn more about Jekyll Island, the gem of Georgia, visit JekyllIsland.com. That's J-E-K-Y-L-L Island.com. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll travel to our respective island playgrounds on the opposite coast in the United States of Martha's Vineyard and Catalina Island. Martha's Vineyard is a New England island that sits just south of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Unlike some islands that are connected by a bridge, the only way to reach the vineyard, as it is often called, is by boat or plane. Rightfully or wrongly, a few things immediately come to mind when some people think of Martha's Vineyard, the Steven Spielberg movie Jaws, the tragedy surrounding the Kennedy family, and President Barack Obama's summer getaway. However, Nancy Gardella tells us that Martha's Vineyard is so much more. Give us a sense of what makes Martha's Vineyard special. One of the things that makes Martha's Vineyard so special is that for most people when they arrive here, it feels like going back in time. They are surrounded by natural beauty that never changes. It's timeless. Nancy, where exactly is Martha's Vineyard located? Martha's Vineyard is located seven miles off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Okay, so the only way to access Martha's Vineyard is? By ferry or by flight. How large is your airport? We have the second busiest airport in Massachusetts after Boston Logan, and it can accommodate small jets. Not only do we have year-round air service provided by Cape Air, but we also can accommodate charter planes Mm. And a recent development in the last few years, JetBlue, Delta, and U.S. Air all fly direct onto Martha's Vineyard between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Nancy, what are some of the other ways to get there? 
Steamship Authority provides 12 to 16 ferries daily to Martha's Vineyard from Woods Hole on Cape Cod. That's every day of the year. In addition, there's seasonal ferry service that is provided by the High Line in Hyannis, Sea Streak from New Bedford and New York, the Island Queen from Falmouth, and the Vineyard Fast Ferry from Quonset Point, Rhode Island. People can bring their cars too, can't they? That's right. The Steamship Authority offers both passenger and auto service. So tell us a little bit about the history of Martha's Vineyard. I was surprised to read that the indigenous population still exists on Martha's Vineyard. Absolutely. In fact, Massachusetts only federally recognized tribe, the Wampanoag, is located here in the westernmost town of Aquina and have been here, in fact, since Martha's Vineyard uh, split off from Cape Cod and floated a little bit out to sea. So Mm -hmm. we are an island made up of the Wampanoag people um, and farmers, and then in time, Um, quite an international port of sailors from around the world. So Mm -hmm. we have always been a very diverse island. And so have all of those cultures influenced Martha's Vineyard in terms of your history and your architecture, food and traditions? Absolutely. I think that that's another one of those things that makes Martha's Vineyard very special is that we are culturally diverse. And so not only will you walk the streets of Martha's Vineyard hearing many different languages and seeing many different types of people, but you'll also have an opportunity to celebrate the arts and the culture that goes with a very diverse community, whether that's in the music, in the theater, in the maritime history of the museums, the walking paths, the fishing trails, murals on walls. There's a great story being told. You know, babe, listening to Nancy talk about Martha's Vineyard, it just brings back so many wonderful memories. And you know, going through our photo gallery and looking over some of the Martha's Vineyard's photos, and I was really disappointed that we didn't take more, that we really didn't capture a lot of the the memories that we shared on that island. There were a lot of memories because it was our first trip there together, and it was nice being able to share that with you. Uh, You know, we spent a lot of time there at Katama Beach. Uh, We saw uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z hanging out in with their entourage and spent some time in the galleries there in Edgartown and mm-hmm. ate all over the island. We did the backdoor dinners in Manemsha. And, you know, the black dog. Yes. The black dog. <laughs> Came back with our T-shirts. <laughs> Which I still have. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're enjoying a visit with Nancy Gardella from Martha's Vineyard Tourism. What's happening with the cuisine scene on the island? I am so happy that you asked me that question because one of the huge benefits, I think, of being a visitor is that you benefit from locally sourced food, whether that is the seafood from our profoundly abundant ocean that is constantly varied and includes a lot of shellfish and fresh fish, as well as the Farms. Martha's Vineyard is very rich in small farms, hmm. which are supported by local markets and local chefs so that they can thrive. So when you dine on Martha's Vineyard, you will be hard-pressed to find a bad meal because no matter where you decide to go, whether you decide to stay to do takeout on a picnic table 
or you decide to treat yourself to the ambiance of a glorious restaurant, mm-hmm. you're eating locally sourced food prepared for you when you order it. And it's a really wonderful upside of Martha's Vineyard. There's still a lot of rich and famous who visit the island, but it's also available to people of all economic levels. You couldn't be more correct. There is a Martha's Vineyard experience for every budget. Certainly for people of means, there are many opportunities to spend money and to spend it well. But if you are a working class person, just like uh, so many of us of more modest means, you can certainly come and enjoy Martha's Vineyard. The mistake that some people make is thinking that Martha's Vineyard is only beautiful or should only be seen in July and August. And quite frankly, it is beautiful in July and August, but that is peak season, both price-wise and admittedly beach-wise. The best-kept secret for the Cape and the Islands is that the late spring and early fall are some of the best times of year. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that September and October is like heaven on Martha's Vineyard. What are some of your popular festivals around the year? Quite honestly, our community is very festival-rich in the autumn, and that is virtually every weekend in September, October, um, through Thanksgiving weekend, and then again uh, for a couple of weekends in December, we celebrate Everything, like typical New England towns, we celebrate the harvest, we celebrate music, we have a month-long arts and cultural celebration that is called Fall for the Arts, Mm. um, which is just a wonderful experience in the depth and diversity of our arts and cultural scene here on the island. In the spring, we have Spring for the Arts, and that is a season-long festival that kicks off with a wonderful an independent film festival in March and works through festivals around fiber farming, including various shearing days in April, mm-hmm. leading into a real kickoff to our season in May and early June that start to celebrate both the water and culinary. One of the things about Martha's Vineyard is that it's a collection of towns from Oak Bluffs to Edgartown to Vineyard Haven, which is a working port. What makes these different towns distinct from one another? Well, they, you're absolutely right, Ian. They each have their own distinctive personality, which makes them very fun to explore. The three port towns that you mentioned, of Vineyard Haven, Oak Bluffs, and Edgartown, are very different from one another. What they have in common are beautiful harbor areas, wonderful green spaces, a main street of commerce dotted with one-of-a-kind shops and boutiques. But each of those towns are very different from one another. Vineyard Haven has a mile-long cultural district, which is a, a density of creative industry from film and theater, design, artist studios and galleries. Oak Bluffs, which is the first town of tourism, on Martha's Vineyard has a really relaxed, laid-back feel. It's thought of as a very family-friendly town with lots of activities for kids. And Edgartown, which is the first town settled on the island, settled by wheeling captains, retains that historical look and feel of when it was settled. Explore harbor towns, the food and art scene, and historic treasures on Massachusetts' Martha's Vineyard. 
Visit mvy.com to plan your visit. My name is Danielle Barber. I'm here representing the iconic Harborview Hotel in beautiful Edgartown, Martha's Vineyard, located on the eastern side of the island. The property was originally built in 1891, overlooking Edgartown Harbor, Lighthouse, and Chappaquiddick Island. Right down the street, we have our beautiful sister property, the Kelly House, again, also located in Edgartown. Both properties are open year-round. They're both boutique properties located in the old whaling town called Edgartown. Walking distance for shopping, restaurants. It's a magical destination. You should bring a group or come and have a vacation with us on the island. What stands out most about Edgartown? Just quintessential New England. It's located a little bit off the beaten path, again, on the eastern side of the island. It's a little bit more undiscovered than OB and Vineyard Haven, but it's a year-round destination. Island is just 22 miles across the Pacific Ocean from metropolitan Southern California, and it is a favorite getaway for Californians and visitors alike. Once owned by the Wrigley Gum family, the island is a haven for unique wildlife and natural beauty. Jim Lutjohan also tells us that Catalina Island holds some Victorian remnants of the past, but is mostly a reflection of Spanish colonial architecture and style and hidden gems that you may not see anywhere else. For those of us who are not familiar with Catalina Island, like myself, give us a sense of where the island is. Despite the famous song by the Mills Brothers, we are not 26 miles out to sea. We are 22 miles out to sea off the coast. Uh, either Los Angeles or Long Beach Harbors would be two of the closest points. However, we also have some daily ferry service from a couple of ports in Orange County a little further south, and it's It's only about an hour ride by boat to get to our beautiful island. You mentioned these ferry service. I'm assuming that's one way to get there. How about getting there by plane? We do have a small airport located in in what we call the interior of the island. It's up up at about 1,000 feet in the hills on the island. And you can fly there on a personal plane. However, there is no commercial service to that airport We do have commercial helicopter service back and forth to the island, though, from various locations all over Southern California. Having lived in Southern California for a number of years, Catalina was one of my playgrounds. 
and I actually camped on the island as a young college student. I was surprised to learn, however, that the island has been inhabited for nearly 8,000 years. Is that correct? Yes, that's what I'm, I've learned since I've been here. The history is actually very deep, and we had a, a pretty significant culture of Pinu Indians, which if you lived in California, you might recognize that tribe as being the, the native community that inhabit a lot of southern Orange County and northern San Diego County, and they have traced the roots of our indigenous island inhabitants to that same tribal culture. Now, are there still members of the tribe on the island? Uh, none that are known. The community that was here either completely integrated with the Spanish and later other European settlers or relocated off the island during various forms of drought and so on. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're enjoying the good life on Catalina Island with resident and Catalina tourism president, Jim Johan. The island sounds like a, a cultural melting pot. Is it still that way? And what are some of the early cultural influences on food and architecture and tradition. The island has been mostly in private hands during all modern history. There were two brothers who were famous in the stagecoach era, the Banning brothers, who ran stagecoach lines on the mainland, who became owners of the island and had the vision of developing it as a resort. And they actually pioneered the first boat service back and forth to the island. There's a famous home over on the mainland in the community of Wilmington which is where the Banning family actually lived, and they built hotels and a multi-site camping community, which is now mostly our downtown, where people would come and, and spend a beach type of uh, vacation camping here, and eventually that led to hotel construction and vacation home construction on a lot of those same plots of land. Mm -hmm. The Banning brothers were quite visionary, but uh, they didn't succeed financially, and when they found themselves at a at a point of not being able to afford to operate their endeavors here anymore, they sold to William Wrigley Jr., the famous chewing gum magnet. Mm -hmm. And right around that same time, there was a devastating fire on the island. And most of the original infrastructure that was of a more Victorian era and wood frame was destroyed in that fire. There's a few exceptions that still remain. So then when the Wrigley family began operating the island as a resort, as well, they built quite a bit of the infrastructure that we see today. So, and and that was 28, 29, 30, sort of at a at a peak in the Spanish Revival architecture. The what is for many the iconic California architecture of mm -hmm. of white walls and tile roofs and tile murals and big arches and big columns and colonnades and and that really um, are three or four probably most iconic structures in town were built around that time and reflect that style. And what was unique because of being an island was how many of those buildings were constructed. For the most part, they found ways to do it all with materials available here on the island. So they quarried the rock and ground it to make the sand, to make the cement. They um, found clay pits on the island, which they used to make the tile. And that led to a whole ladder tradition as a tourist souvenir to buy and collect Catalina tile when people came here to take back. And so that really is very much a big part of setting the ambiance. But then, of course, we've always been an ocean-born community of uh, fishing and so on. So we do have some very typical wharf-like structures along the waterfront that are built on pilings with wood frame and maybe look a little bit more 
East Coast New Englandy if you were going to stereotype them. Jim, since Catalina Island is relatively close to Los Angeles and Orange County, is there a, a resident population that's there? And give us a sense of those people who are living on the island who actually commute daily to Los Angeles for work or for other things. Yeah, well, most of our commuters are actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. They're people whose who's maybe spouse or other family obligations keep them more tied to the mainland, but they might have a job here working in our hospital or in one of our schools or one of the um, campgrounds or other uh, tourism supportive uh, businesses here on the island. We have about 4,000 people who inhabit the island on a full-time basis, and I'm one of them, I'm happy Mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody who lives here full-time works in a visitor-serving capacity in one way or the other. So we're very appreciative of all the visitors that come here and and fully understand that that's our lifeblood and and what keeps us all going here. Jim, you touched on earlier about uh, some of the architecture and some of the uh, influences of of Spanish-style architecture on the island. What are some of the iconic structures that actually reflect uh, the predominant architectural style on Catalina Island? So specifically, that Spanish colonial look would be the casino. And Mr. Wrigley had that designed and built, as I mentioned. It has never been a gambling casino. That's often an assumption that people make, that it's actually named in the true meaning of the Italian word, which is as a gathering place. Mm-hmm. And that particular building has a movie theater on the ground floor. It houses a small museum on the ground floor. And then it has a giant ballroom, which sits at about the equivalent of 12 stories up. In, and that was famous during the whole big band era and ballroom dancing. And we still use it that way, at least on New Year's Eve, when we have an annual New Year's Eve ball. And, and occasionally throughout the year for other events like Jazz Track Festival, it, it is used in a very appropriate way for its original vision and construction. And it's just incredibly beautiful building with mm-hmm. murals and tile work and chandeliers and just a very spectacular piece of architecture. Another that was built right around the same time was what is now referred to as the Country Club, but was originally a clubhouse for the Chicago Cubs when Mr. Wrigley brought his Chicago baseball team here for spring training every year while he lived here. Mm-hmm. And then probably a third in the Spanish colonial design would be a very small structure that actually Mrs. Wrigley built, and it's called the Chimes Tower. And anywhere you are in Avalon, on the quarter hour, half hour, an hour, you will hear chimes ring out. And it's from this um, beautiful little structure that sits on a, on a cliff right above town. And it's um, beautifully designed as well. And then on the sort of waterfront wharf-like structure, the most iconic thing would be what we call the Green Pier, mm-hmm. which is where um, most of our waterborne tourism activities depart from and where local boaters who um, come over maybe from the mainland for a weekend can tie up their dinghy and walk into town. And then we have also right along the waterfront the Tuna Club, uh, the oldest sports fishing private club in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, the Catalina Island Yacht Club would also be a very iconic section. And then I'd say just in general the entire waterfront because it's a mixture of Spanish and, and more, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s mm-hmm. architecture, but all in, in very very beautifully executed forms of every one of those eras. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're enjoying the good life on Catalina Island with resident and Catalina tourism president, Jim Lutjohan. And you had mentioned Avalon, and I'm wondering what specifically Avalon 
refers to? Does it refer to the Wrigley Mansion, or is it the yes. island itself? So the island is named Catalina Island, and 80% of the island is a wilderness area that's managed under a, a land trust, um, which the Wrigley family formed and, and endowed, which is called the Catalina Island Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Avalon makes up a little couple-mile square exception from that. So we, we have just a very small area. Avalon is an incorporated city, like Long Beach or New York or Chicago. Oh. But um, that's where those about 3,800 of the 4,000 people will reside right in Avalon. There's one very small tourism-serving community down the island uh, that is called Two Harbors, mm-hmm. and there are about 200 people there that live there. Jim, I'm sure there are lots of activities for recreational interest. and Give us a sense of what's available on the island in terms of a recreational perspective and also some of your significant festivals. Like we have the land trust that manages the interior where there are you know, all these preserved plants and, and animals like bison, which is often a surprise to visitors here. Uh, we have mule deer. We have... Um, a miniature fox variety that's endemic to the island that you can enjoy in the interior, and you, and you access that by taking Jeep tours. But we have sort of a waterborne counterpart in Lover's Cove and at Casino Point, where there are two marine preserves that you can enjoy in snorkeling and, and um, scuba diving, mm-hmm. or by taking a glass-bottom boat, or we have a semi-sub with uh, viewing glass on all sides of the submarine, which are great ways to enjoy the underwater life here, which is incredible. Our water clarity rivals or beats much of the Caribbean. I've, I've been a diver there, and I, I'm blown away by the quality of, of what you can see and, and enjoy here. For somebody who's visiting Catalina for the first time, what would they do? How would they travel like you, like a local? So if it's your first time, I would say a must-do is renting a golf cart, um, and that might sound funny. It's not because you're going in golfing, but we don't have very many full-size vehicles on the island. And a visitor to the island cannot bring their car. They have to come over on a passenger ferry. And so you can rent golf carts by the hour. And in about a two-hour period, you can do a really lovely drive that will take you up into the hills and, and up and down the streets of the, of the downtown area. And you get a really good sense of the place. Then to get into more of the local scene, I would say you can, you can rent a little boat and, and get out and enjoy the waterfront. We all do that. We love our, our oceanfront here. We have great little coves. Um, just up and down from the city of Avalon, where you can see the um, sea life or go fishing. We have a, um, a little treasure of a restaurant that is not in a tourist area at all. It's called the Sand Trap, and they have dollar tacos on Tuesdays, so that's oh. a must for locals. Enjoy the good life on California's Catalina Island. See the Wrigley Mansion and more at CatalinaChamber.com. Dear, I don't know about you, but I've had a really good time exploring the islands that we did, particularly because two of those islands, Catalina for me and Martha's Vineyard for you, were kind of our playgrounds. Yes, they were. And particularly Martha's Vineyard for me, it has a lot of fond memories, uh, most of them positive. Uh, but uh, my my six trips to Martha's Vineyard, uh, the last one being with you many years ago, almost 10 years ago, mm-hmm. have all had special memories. Uh, 
but I will never forget my one trip to Martha's Vineyard that resulted in me winding up in the hospital on Martha's Vineyard as the result of a rollerblading accident. Well, I can imagine that that would be a happy memory, but my memories on Catalina Island uh, were wonderful. I used to go just for day trips, and I did a camping trip there with friends from college, and it was wonderful. It was it was really comfortable. It was a cold night, and if I had anything to criticize about my camping trip, it was because it was cold. And then we looked at uh, Jekyll Island. In Georgia. And the surprising thing for me with all of these islands, first of all, is that the history, the history is very, very rich. And also, all three islands had architecture that was influenced by the East Coast. And only Martha's Vineyard really is an East Coast island. Uh, and so I thought that surprised me quite a bit. Yeah, it, it just goes to show you that the waterfront architecture that was developed in New England and, and on the East Coast influenced the southern island of Jekyll Island and Catalina Island in California. And it's probably because all of the moneyed people came from the east and... Oh, that's true. You know, that's, and so... Like the Vanderbilts, yeah, the Rockefellers. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so they brought those uh, uh, perspectives and values with them wherever they went. Uh, but it is interesting that in California you see an intersection of the Spanish style as well as that New England style. And right. I was really surprised to hear about the New England style in California. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would not have expected that at all. I'm a little bit surprised to have not heard about any Spanish influences in Georgia, considering that the Spanish, the French, they all traveled those waterways down there. Mm. Our other segment that we discussed, the South Pole bike journey, when, I must say, when I first heard about this, I thought, what the heck? And really, is this something that you would do? And we're both adventurers. Maybe I don't know if I'm that adventurous <laughs> to go to someplace that cold. You, well, I mean... Uh, I don't even think okay. you're that serious about cold. I can't even get you to no, move back to Michigan. I don't like the cold, but <laughs> for, you know, 18, 19 days uh, and a new adventure, I might consider it. Mm. But the one thing that we learned that wasn't shared in the interview was that the people who travel to the South Pole on bikes with this group, with the TDA Global Group, they have to carry their own body waste. Mm. And I don't understand how that will work and what they will put their body waste in. I mean, that's the only troublesome thing for me, more so mm. than the cold. But well, other than that, you know, I think it's a really cool trip. And I really admire Henry Gold and his entrepreneurial spirit, even at a late age. And it just goes to show you that you're never too old to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. We're doing it with yeah. World Footprints. Indeed. We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we thank you for inviting us into your home again. And we look forward to sharing another journey with you next time on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. 
Listen, learn and live it at worldfootprints.com.